series, The Unseen Sovereign. It's good to see you all here, and uh, it's good to have those of you online with us, and thanks for joining us that way. Uh, we've got to remember that uh, today, as we think about Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday has some reflections that fit in with Esther. Esther was about 2,500 years ago, give or take a few, and uh, obviously uh, Easter, uh, Palm Sunday was 2,000 years ago, so we still think about those things, and we see that in many ways Esther points to Easter in the deliverance of people, and uh, we'll be taking a look at that as we move through it. You know, there's something in all of us that really love the idea of an underdog uh, winning, you know, coming back, and we love to see the bully get it. Uh, we love those situations where all of a sudden we find a reversal, a change. And one of the most famous reversals where the booty, the booty, yeah, the, where the um, bully gets it is this. We love those times where there is a reversal, where everything turns around, and we love seeing Biff get it. Uh, we're so happy that George McFly wins, and it's set, things start to come together. Uh, we love those, those times, and there's a game called Uno, uh, where there is this card that is called the reverse card, and the reverse card can change everything in an intense Uno game. Uh, you may know what I'm talking about. How many of you have never played Uno? That is so sad. Even my mother hasn't played Uno. This, that's what we're going to be this afternoon. No, you're not really going to be. I know. So that is very sad. Three of you, we'll, we'll, we'll pray for you and help you out later on. But, uh, you know, Uno, you should have, so you didn't even know what this was. Well, you could have read it. Everyone should have received a Uno card in their program. should be in there. And uh, what I'd like to do is a little survey. Did anyone, as they think about Uno, did anyone receive a reverse card? We got one reverse card. We got two reverse cards. Three, four, four. Any other reverse cards? Is that a real reverse card? Or are you faking it out? Okay, you're, someone's like trying to figure it out. Well, just to, to go in the spirit. I mean, I really don't like these Dunkin' Donut coffees. But uh, who are, where are those again? I'm gonna mess up the speaker. If you got a reverse card, there's two over here. The reverse card changes everything. And as we look at scripture, often we find these moments where things just uh, reverse. It's going one way, and then all of a sudden, it's going another way. And a lot of us, I, I mean, I wish I could do this. I wish that I could actually have a reverse card in, in life. That, you know, something's going on, and you just hand the reverse card to the person, and it just flips the whole thing around. And I came across this little clip, and I thought this was great. I think I may try this sometime. Hey, how you doing today? I got you for uh, speeding. 
Uh, do you have your license and registration? No, I think you were speeding, sir. You got me, man. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, you get pulled over, you give a guy a reverse card, and all of a sudden, uh, or drop, you know, pick up four cards, and you get, he gets four tickets or something. But anyway, that would be awesome. Well, there's things in life that you and I wish we could have a reverse card on. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's a, it's a bad decision we made, and we wish we could turn in that reverse card and, and turn everything around. We, we wish that we could do that. Uh, we wish that uh, there might be a time where in life, uh, the question is, where in life could you uh, use an unexpected reverse card? And some of us have experienced those. And some of us have experienced those as really being a God moment where God has stepped in and all of a sudden the tables have turned. And we see that taking place for Esther. Uh, most of us uh, know the ending, so we, even when we start reading the story, we know what's coming. But just imagine if you could have read Esther uh, with just fresh eyes. I know there's been some movies that I've really, really enjoyed. And then you get to the end, you get the surprise, and after that, the movie's no longer as fun as it was because you know what's going to happen at the end. And sometimes we can feel that with Esther. But Esther's definitely a story of... Um, you know, unexpected endings, unexpected uh, changes. And what's also interesting, when you think about Uno, you know, the goal is to get down to one card, and then you say Uno, and if you say it, you've won, and that, that's wonderful. And there's also a little similarity to that in life. Sometimes you and I need to, in a sense, get down to our last card in life, our last uh, thing that we're kind of holding on to, and discover that that last card, that last thing, really ought to be God. And we have all these other things in life, all these other cards in life, and we're kind of getting, they're kind of being taken away from us, we're losing them, and we get down to our last card, and we find that needs to be God, Uno, the number one in our lives. So this idea of reverse and one card is, 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 is kind of reflected as we kind of wrap things up here in Esther. And what I'd like to do is I'm going to read chapter 9 and 10. There's a lot of reading there, but I just want you to, to hear it, to, to get the flavor of it. I'm going to use the New Living Translation as we go through this. So on March 7th, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. On that, one, on that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. There was a reverse. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them. But no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them. That's another one of these little God moments. They, there was a fear welling up in the folks that they did not want to cross the Jews. It's also very important to point out that when the Jews are fighting, they are defending themselves. They aren't going on the aggress aggressive side of things. As you're reading that, it almost seems like they are, but they were taking a stand, and if you wanted to attack them, bring it on, and they would defend themselves. And so we see this unfolding. And all the nobles of the provinces, the highest officers, the governors, and the royal officials helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai. For Mordecai had been promoted in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. At first you go, wow, Mordecai, he's you know, really doing a good job. And I think that's part of it. But I also think the hand of God was on him. 
That's where the reversal is taking place, that the hand of God is on him and everything is changing. So the Jews went ahead on the appointed day and struck down their enemies with the sword. They killed and annihilated their enemies and did as they pleased with those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa itself, the Jews killed 500 men, but they did not take any plunder. That's an important thing to remember. What their motives, their motives really were defense. It wasn't to kill these people and take their stuff. They don't take their plunder. It's said two other times in this passage. And this also brings us back, we may go there, we may not, it brings us back to uh, the day of Saul. It brings us back even farther to the day of Exodus when the Israelites were leaving and there was this group of people that uh, uh, didn't let them pass through their land and gave them a hard time. And God made a pronouncement on these people that they, they shouldn't stand. And then later on when the first king of Israel is king and Saul and they, they fight uh, this group of Amalekites. Um, he's supposed to destroy all of them because of their wicked ways. It was supposed to be uh, an expression of justice and God's justice. And uh, Saul did not do that. He kept some of the possessions. He kept the king alive. And that was the beginning of the end for Saul because they had done that. So this idea that they would not take any plunder, I think they're trying to make right something that happened in the past. So they're making sure that their motives are just to defend themselves. That very day when the king was informed of the number of people in the fortress of Susa, he called for Queen Esther. He said the Jews have killed 500 men in the fortress of Susa alone. Remember that uh, the edict, the second edict, actually allowed for uh, the Jews to kill women and children. And, and they don't do that. And you say, well, isn't that very nice of them? Again, this whole idea that they are, they are defending themselves, those that are armed against them. Haman's ten sons are also killed. Uh, if they have done that there, what has happened in the rest of the provinces? But now what more do you want? It will be granted to you. Tell me and I will do it. Esther responded, if it pleases the king, give the Jews and Susa permission to do it again tomorrow as they have done today and let the bodies of Haman's ten sons be impaled on a pole. They're already dead. And basically Esther's saying, if there are those that still want us to attack us, let our people take defensive lines again and stand. And uh, some would say, oh, Esther's just trying to get a little bit more. But no, she's, she's trying to get those that are out to kill her people to, to, to stop them. And again, the, the hanging, the putting on the pole of the ten sons was supposed to be, hey, don't do this. Stay in your homes. Don't attack them. This was supposed to be a warning. So what, to us, it seems pretty gruesome, and it does seem gruesome, but it was this, this warning against those. Then the Jews at Susa gathered together on March 8th and killed 300 more men, and again, they took no plunder. Meanwhile, the other Jews throughout the king's provinces had gathered together, defended their lives. They gathered, gained relief from all their enemies, killing 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not take any plunder. Again, 
these are people that are trying to attack them they're defending themselves they're not they're not defending themselves to take their stuff their valuables their homes they're just defending themselves so that they can in a sense live in freedom that's what they're trying to do here and we had earlier said that there were probably 10 million jews in the kingdom so these numbers uh, seem huge but they were huge they were large there were lots of people this was done throughout the provinces on march 7th and on march 8th they rested celebrating their victory with a day of feasting and gladness the jews at susa killed their enemies on march 7th and again on march 8th then rested on march 9th making that their day of feasting and gladness we read on so to this day rural jews living in remote villages celebrate an annual festival and holiday on the appointed day in late winter when they rejoice and send gifts of food to each other mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to the jews near and far through all the provinces of king xerxes calling on them to celebrate an annual feast festival on these two days he told them to celebrate these days with feasting and gladness and by giving gifts of food to each other and presents to the poor. This would commemorate a time when the Jews gained relief from their enemies, when their sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning into joy. There is a big reversal taking place. And uh, you're going to say, why do they keep repeating this? We'll get to why they keep going over these details just in a little form, but keep repeating themselves. So the Jews accepted Mordecai's proposal and adopted this annual custom, still celebrating it today. Haman, son of Hamadiah, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted to crush and destroy them on that date, uh, determined by casting lots. The lots were called Purim. But when Esther came before the king, he issued a decree causing Haman's evil plot to backfire. And Haman and his sons were impaled on sharp Poles. Again, they continue to repeat this again and again. This is why this celebration is called Purim, because it's the ancient word for casting lots. So because of Mordecai's letter and because of what they'd experienced, the Jews throughout the realm agreed to inaugurate this tradition and to pass it on to their descendants and to all who became Jews. They declared they would never fail to celebrate these two prescribed days as the appointed time each year again they're celebrating that god shows up behind the scenes but they're also celebrating that god enabled this great victory for a reverse card to be played for all of their people these days would be remembered and kept from generation to generation and celebrated by every family throughout the provinces and cities of the empire the festival of term would never cease to be celebrated among the jews nor would the memory of whatever happened die out among their descendants. And then the queen weighs in on it. The queen Esther, daughter of Abihal, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote another letter, putting the queen's full authority behind Mordecai's letter to establish the festival of Purim. Letters wishing peace and security were sent to the Jews throughout the 127 provinces of the empire of Xerxes. These letters established the festival of Purim, an annual celebration of these days at the appointed time, decreed by both Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther. The people decided to observe the festivals just as they decided for themselves and their descendants to establish the times of fasting and mourning. So the command of Esther confirmed the practices of Purim, and it was all written down in the records. 
Xerxes imposed a tribute, we get into chapter 10, throughout his empire, even to the distant coastlands. His great achievement and full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are recorded in the book of history of the kings of Mede uh, and Persia. Mordecai, the Jew, became the prime minister with authority next to the king of Xerxes himself. He was very great among the Jews, who held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. I need a sip of water. So, we've said this in a bunch of different ways. We see that God may seem hidden, but he's not hiding. In all of this, God may seem hidden, but he's not hiding. And they want to celebrate all that has happened. They want to celebrate the fact that God's fingerprints are on everything. It's obvious to them. I want you to think, I want us to think, us to consider as we look at our lives and see the fingerprints of God all around us. These aren't coincidences. They just aren't happening. God is showing up and moving in our lives in ways that if we don't slow down and reflect, we don't see. Anna talked about that. Anna talked a little bit more about it in the first service, about these God moments through all of this experience. She talks about how even in this war, God's name is being lifted up and people are seeing him and, and, and being drawn to him and recognizing that he is holding back the tides of this war in different places, even though it's still horrendous and horrific things are going on. So seeing God's fingerprints. Um, recently, there was a commercial that's been playing that uh, kind of just teases out this idea of coincidences mean something. Hey, I was uh, thinking about going back to school to get my master's. I just saw something that said you could do it in a year for like 11 k hmm. Order 11? Yes, here at 11. 11, 11, Master Boulevard, please. It's gonna be 11 even, buddy. Really? The clues are all around us. Some things are too obvious to be ignored. The clues are all around us. And I would challenge you and encourage you, all of us, to see the clues are all around us. Not necessarily that you need to go back to school and get your master's and it's 11K, but the idea that God is working around us as we slow down and see his fingerprints. And as we think of the story and we think of conclusion, uh, you know, all that's going on, there's just a couple thoughts I want to leave us with. And the first one is this astonishing reversal. This astonishing reversal. Please don't take anything away from the story of Esther. This is unbelievable how things reverse. It's almost impossible to see how this is happening. And, uh, you know, I mentioned to you earlier on when the whole situation in Ukraine came out, uh, a seminary professor from Ukraine wrote a, a letter to family and friends saying that he felt like he was living in the times of Esther, that there was this force that wanted to destroy his people, his nation, and how the, the seminary professors, even though they could leave the country, weren't leaving the country. They were staying at the seminary. They were going to try to open the doors and feed people and take care of people. And churches did the same. Again, this opportunity of this. And then as you see this unfolding, it is unbelievable how Ukraine has been able to hold up against the opposing forces. 
uh, and it's astonished everyone about it. And likewise, in the story, there's this astonishing uh, reversal. There's this change. Uh, Jesus talks about this. We see this all throughout. We see David and Goliath, astonishing reversal. No one thought David was going to win. No one thought that. We all just know it now, so we don't even stop and pause at it. But no one thought that David was going to win. Scriptures are a story of astonishing reversals. Even some of us who have uh, come to Christ have seen the astonishing reversal that's taken place in our hearts and then worked its way on the outside into our behavior. And, and people who meet us can't even believe it. I, I've talked to some people, you know, that, uh, you know, just share about how when the change happens in their life, they say yes to Christ. It starts to change them, not in a self-righteous way, but it starts to, in a sense, get outside and people start to see it. And there's this astonishing reversal. We see this through scripture. Um, we read uh, Jesus saying, they'll get it all back, talking about losing things for the cause of, of faith. They'll get it all back. But multiplied many times in homes, brothers, sisters, and mothers, Christians, and land, but also in troubles. And this isn't talking about, you know, you follow Christ and, and you give your life and all of a sudden it's like a giving investment plan. But at the same time, there is this investment piece. You're investing your life. We've talked about sowing and reaping. But it's not to, to, to give away to get more. But you see, as you start to follow Christ, things start to change in your life. The things that you've lost uh, are, are worth it. And then the bonus of eternal life. This is once again the great reversal. Many who are first will end up last and the last first. You know, when there's a great reversal that takes place, uh, usually it's somebody has power and has all these things, and all of a sudden there's someone who doesn't have power and all these things, and all of a sudden it reverses and it changes. Getting the little Uno reverse card changes everything sometimes in that game. You think you're winning, and all of a sudden there's a reverse, and now you're losing and the other person's winning. In this thing called faith, there's this great reversal. Um, also, the idea of risk. There's an unrelenting risk. There's a risk to following God. It, it's, it's not everything's perfect and everything's easy. There's a risk. We see that in Esther's life. She risked her life for her people. She's not just satisfied with her own life. She wants others to experience the freedom that she has and the goodness that she has. And uh, we see that in Philippians. We read, meanwhile, live in such a way that you are credit to the me message of Christ. Let nothing in your conduct hang on whether I come or not. This is Paul speaking. Uh, your conduct must be the same, whether I show up, see things for myself, or hear them from a distance. Stand unified, singular in vision, contending. This is the idea. Contending for people's trust in the message. Your lifestyle, in a sense, is, is a witnessing tool. It gives credibility or takes credibility away from the message. The good news, not flinching or dodging in the slightest before the opposition. You follow Christ, you will have opposition. Your courage and unity will show them what they're up against. Defeat for them, victory for you, and both because of God. This idea of unrelenting risk, and we see this throughout the story. Also, there is surprising restraint. A number of times we hear this, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. There's this surprising restraint. They, they want people to see why they're living the way they're living, why they're doing what they're doing. It's just not to get, it's to stand up. 
and they have this surprising restraint. And again, it goes back to Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel. It goes back all the way to Exodus, this idea where they had not shown restraint. And now they're showing restraint. Their motives are, are right. Uh, even there's a situation where one of Elijah's servants, right-hand man, uh, doesn't show restraint. And you may be familiar with the story. Um, there's a, a healing, and this big general from another country is healed, and he wants to give all this stuff to Elijah, and Elijah won't take it. And then the servant afterwards runs after him and says, hey, wait a minute, Elijah changed his mind. Why don't you give me some things and get some gold and silver and some clothes and those kinds of things. Elijah finds out, and he says this, don't you know I was with you in spirit when that man stepped down from his chariot to greet you? Tell me, is this the time to look after yourselves, lining your pocket with gifts? And sometimes God will bless us. Sometimes God will do things in our life. He'll call us to do things. And, and we've got to make sure our motive's in the right place. It's just not to give to get. It's to be a servant leader. We also see throughout this story this overflowing gratefulness. It's hard to be ungrateful when you're focusing on being grateful. And we see it on and on and on that uh, Esther, the people, they celebrate. And it's just overflowing from their lives. Um, we read God's name is a place of protection. God's people can run there and be safe. The rich think their wealth protects them. They imagine themselves as safe behind it. Pride first, then the crash. But humility is the precursor to honor. This idea of gratefulness and having it. And as you and I see God as our protection, as we get down to our last uno card, in a sense, uh, we have no cards left. That's where we lean into God and find that he's our place of protection. And we have a gratefulness that just permeates our lives. Also, there's this idea of resisting ungratefulness. It's, it's so easy in a place where we're so blessed and have so many things not to be grateful, and, and we need to resist it. Yes, we need gratefulness overflowing, but we also need to resist this idea of gratefulness. Um, uh, we see this uh, time and time again uh, that they're celebrating, remembering, 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 because it helps them resist ungratefulness. That's why it goes on and on with chapter 9, just coming back and rehearsing and rehearsing because the, you know, uh, the writer of Esther wants the people to hold on to the truth that God showed up in their lives and they ought to be thankful. It's so easy to let that go. You see, when we celebrate what God did in the past, it renews our hope in what he will do in the future. And so when we continue to renew that, review that, hold on to it, that's one reason about once a month we have communion, because we're remembering what Christ did in the past, and that gives us hope in the future. This week we'll have a Good Friday service to remember what Christ did when he died on the cross for us. And then Sunday we get together to celebrate what he did, his resurrection, and all that goes along with that is because it renews our hope in what he will do in the future. And then the last little piece, and we see this transformation taking place with Mordecai and Esther. But in the next few verses, we see uh, just this transformation in Mordecai's life that he really becomes this serving leader. He's not a self-serving leader. He's a serving leader. 
And a lot of times in our life, the leader, the boss, the one that's got all the power, you know, has all the stuff, has all the toys, has the corner office, has the parking space, has the power, whatever you want to say. And, it, and they like being at the top of the pile because they get all these bennies. Well, in Mordecai's life, he gives a great example of a serving leader. He, he remembers the people. He's serving the people. He's leveraging his leadership for those around him. Now, you may say, well, I'm not a leader. Well, all people have influence, and really influence is a pathway to leadership. When you have influence, you are leading people. Even if it's not obvious, you have an influence, you have a role as being a leader. And we see this with Mordecai. Mordecai the Jew was second in importance to King Xerxes. He was the most important man among the Jews. His fellow Jews respected him very much. Where did that respect come from? It became, came from the fact that he was a servant leader because he worked hard for the people of the good of his people and brought peace to all the Jews. Now, it's interesting when we think about Esther, we think about Mordecai, and we think about what they did, how God used them. We really see this. We see a partial deliverance. This deliverance was partial and temporary. But when we look to Christ, as we look to Holy Week, as we look to celebrating what he did for us, deliverance through Jesus is complete and eternal. It's complete and eternal. When you and I come into relationship with God, when we are delivered, when there's forgiveness of sin, that is completed. It is eternal. That relationship with God starts in the here and now and ushers us into the future. So as we think about this and we think about the great reversal, we think about Uno, the one, the one card in a sense in our deck that we should be focusing on, which is God in our life. We have to ask ourselves, where in life could you use an unexpected reverse? Where could you use that? What change could you use? For some of us, it may mean entering into a relationship with God. Maybe we've never said yes to him. Maybe we need to place our trust in Jesus and accept his forgiveness. Know that he died on the cross for us, rose again, was that lamb of God we've sung about. And that starts this unexpected reversal. Things start to change in our heart. Maybe we're in another place in life. Maybe we've said yes to Christ years ago, and we start to see some things that just don't line up, some hurts in our lives, some changes that we need, and they seem huge. But the reality is no matter where you and I are at, the reverse card, of Christ energizing our life, of turning to him, can reverse things unexpectedly. And all of us probably know some stories where someone, even after they had said yes to Christ, kind of wandered a little ways. Some of us are familiar with the, the prodigal son. They kind of went their own way, and then they come to their senses, and then there is this great reversal. So as we think about all of this, and we think about God working in our life, and we think about the great reversals, you know, sometimes we get lost and think that we're so small. Um, we realize that, yes, uh, kings rule over other nations, but God rules over them both. And that's big, that's, that's huge, that's macro, but also there's this micro, and that's our personal lives. And so the story of Esther shows that even though God's name is not mentioned, God does rule over the nations, and he rules, and, uh, he rules over them both. So as we think about Esther, I hope you really take this little Uno card. There's a little uh, writing, some of the cards is clearer than others. Where in life could you use an unexpected reverse? 
Esther the uns- in the unseen sovereign. Challenge you to stick this on your refrigerator someplace and just remember that Esther's that in Esther's life God worked behind the scenes and Mordecai's also. Would you please pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the way you work in our lives, and you work in our lives on an individual basis. It's just not macro, but it's micro. And Father, I ask that all of us would take just a few moments and try to think where there ought to be some big reversals in our life, where we need that change, uh, that, that unexpected change. And Father, if there's someone here this morning that's not said yes to you, I ask that they would begin that relationship with you by just calling out to you in, in the silence of their heart and saying, I want you in my life. And then for those of us who have known you for a while or maybe a lot of whiles and uh, we're uh, trying to figure things out, uh, Lord, help us to see that there are still moments where you and I, uh, where we can experience uh, reversals. So we just thank you for Esther. We thank you for this book, and we thank you for the way it speaks to our lives even all these years later. We ask this in Jesus' name.